I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa D. Simone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the treasure trove of information about corporate taxes hiding in companies' tax footnotes. Companies are required to periodically file financial statements and associated footnotes with the Security and Exchange Commission, or SEC. The point is to provide information about financial performance to stakeholders. In today's episode, we welcome Patrick Badalotto, an associate professor of instruction from the University of Texas at Austin, to discuss what investors and other interested parties can learn about a company's income taxes by examining their income tax footnote. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. So today I'm over the moon, I'm on cloud nine, I'm walking on sunshine, whatever other, I don't know, weather related things you wanna say, because we are taking another, yes, another deep dive into the riveting world of income tax footnotes. We are, and I just wanna point out to our listeners that you're not even being the tiniest bit sarcastic when you say with a straight face that you think tax footnotes are riveting. It's shocking, I know. I do not love many things, but I do love the income tax provision and the tax footnote. So we have a special guest joining us today, which means we don't have time to completely unpack what happened to you in your life as a child to make accounting for income taxes one of the few things that you actually love. Uh, That's correct. And to be clear, I'm not sure anyone has time for that. So continue. Fair point. Um, So let's go ahead and dive in and set the stage. So public companies in the United States pay income taxes just like we mere mortals do. And if you're an investor or just a curious member of the public, you might want to know just how much a company pays so that you can determine if it is an appropriate amount, whatever appropriate means to you. Now, we know that the corporate statutory tax rate is 21% thanks to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And let me say that again, that's the statutory tax rate. What that means is that by law, absent any tax planning, every dollar that a public company earns gets taxed at 21%. They have to pay 21 cents to the government, leaving 79 cents for reinvestment or shareholder payouts. Okay, and that all tracks, but we know that companies do tax plan. Yes. And as a result of that tax planning, some companies pay less than 21 cents on every dollar of income. Our episode on zero tax firms already highlighted some of the ways companies can do that. So you can go hit up that episode for a refresher, but we're also gonna go over some things that help companies reduce their tax payments, things like earning income in jurisdictions uh, where the tax rate is less than 21% and also by claiming things like tax credits. So the trick is that if you are an investor or one of these generally interested people, companies' tax returns are confidential, just like they are for us mere mortals. Yep. So if you want to know anything about a company's taxes, you basically need to go and look at their publicly filed financial statements. And fortunately for us, you can learn a lot about taxes from their financial statements. So first, you can see the amount of income tax the company paid during the year. That information is going to be either in the cash flow statement or in the tax footnote. And it's a pretty useful number, but it isn't broken down by year or by jurisdiction. So it could be muddling together payments related to this year with some payments related to a current tax audit of a prior year. And it could also be muddling things like U.S. taxes, U.S. state taxes, and even non-U.S. taxes. The next thing that you can get is the tax accrual, what we nerds call the tax provision or what some people call the tax expense. And that's the amount of tax that the company accrues during the year related to their pre-tax earnings that they've computed under generally accepted accounting principles. Now that tax provision is gonna show up on the income statement because it is an expense. 
And if you get super crafty and you divide that tax provision by pre-tax earnings for the year, you get what we call a company's effective tax rate or ETR. That's different than that 21% statutory rate. The effective tax rate is gonna be a firm specific measure that captures their tax expense, their tax accrual, not their payments, as a percentage of their pre-tax book income. Right, and a company's effective tax rate or ETR can be lower than 21% if they do a lot of tax planning, but it could also be greater than 21% because it includes state taxes, taxes in other countries, and some of those other countries could have a statutory tax rate greater than our 21% here in the US. Now, helpfully, the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, requires companies to explain significant differences between that U.S. statutory tax rate of 21% and their effective tax rate every year in their tax footnote. They require a tabular reconciliation that companies have to disclose every year. We call it the rate reconciliation or the rate rec, if you're really cool. Um, so Lisa, let's go ahead and walk through an example. We have very different definitions of what is cool, but that's all good. Um, totally fine. All right. Example. In uh, its 2022 10K, Apple reported $119 billion of pre-tax income. At a 21% statutory tax rate, a naive investor might expect them to accrue about $25 billion of tax expense. But as you may have heard, Apple is a tax planner. Shocker. So they report tax expense of only about $19 billion. And so if you calculate that effective tax rate, it's only about 16.2%. So that leaves the, I guess, $6 billion question of why. Why is Apple able to accrue tax at less than 21%? Yep. Place you're going to find that out is by looking at their rate reconciliation table. And what you'll see is that they're able to reduce that tax provision below 21% of pre-tax income through exactly what Lisa talked about. Things like foreign operations, research and development tax credits, and everyone's favorite excess tax benefits from employee stock compensation. We also have an episode on that. Yes, we do. So with this information, investors can identify which of these items are likely to be recurring versus non-recurring. And you could actually build a company specific tax rate. So this detail is useful because it gives investors a little bit of information about the risk or let's say the quality of a company's tax planning. So for example, tax savings from foreign operations might be a little risky because they might attract attention from the IRS or maybe even from other countries and lead to some audit issues. On the other side, things like excess tax benefits from employee stock compensation are pretty low risk. Like you should be able to calculate that number pretty easily. Mm. So it's not gonna get you in too much trouble from an IRS audit perspective, but it might get you into a bit of hot water with politicians and the press. Okay, so we've got information about tax payments, tax expense, tax risk. What else can we learn from the tax footnote? Uh, so let's talk about the valuation allowance. Yes, let's. So not every company will have a valuation allowance, but when a company does, it could signal bad news about their expected future profitability. Now, although I could talk about this for an hour, I don't think anybody on this call wants more, that to happen. More than an hour. Yep, I've been there. Probably true. And, and you survived it. <laughs> Barely. All right, so without doing that, without getting too much into the weeds, let's just say that U.S. generally accepted accounting principles require companies to recognize assets in the current year for tax benefits that they might be able to recognize in some future year. These could relate to things like tax credits or deductions that for whatever reason, the company can't use right now, but could use in the future. But companies only get to record a benefit for assets, tax assets or otherwise, if they actually expect to realize those benefits at some point in the future. If a company doesn't think it's gonna to get to enjoy those future tax assets, which by the way, could happen if they don't expect to have enough future taxable income, then they have to accrue a valuation allowance and it's going to offset or effectively reduce the value of those assets. So 
this valuation allowance gets accrued when maybe you don't think you're going to be too profitable in the future. Right. And that can be bad news. So academic research has actually shown that these valuation allowances can provide incremental information about how persistent a company's pre-tax book losses will be. And that's pretty cool, at least from our perspective as, you know, tax nerds. It's all pretty cool. And I hope that our non-tax nerd guest is going to think so too. We're delighted to welcome a special guest to the podcast, Patrick Battelotto, to share his insights on what you can learn about a company's taxes from their financial statements, even if you are not a certified tax nerd like B and I are. Patrick is an associate professor of instruction at the University of Texas Macomb School of Business, where he won two prestigious teaching awards this year alone. Patrick earned his PhD from Duke University and has experience working in both assurance and tax. Patrick's teaching expertise focuses on financial statement analysis, which is what makes him the absolute perfect guest for this episode. Patrick, welcome to Taxes for the Masses. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate having the opportunity to chat with you today. We are so excited uh, that you're here because if nothing else, I think it's going to provide some evidence that, like Lisa said, people other than certified tax nerds actually care about this stuff. I'm not sure I'm actually going to help you there. I would probably classify myself as a tax nerd as well. All right. Well, then it's just good to welcome another tax nerd it's, into the community. It's nice to know we're not alone. Yes. So let's start pretty simple uh, and high level. At a at, you know ten thousand foot view, what are you looking for generally when you analyze a tax footnote? I must teach a class financial statement analysis, and my target audience is almost always MBAs, uh, not usually students who are you know preparing to become tax professionals. So the goal is, how does an individual who needs financial information, uh, you know, what do they get out of this? And I would say the biggest takeaway that I hope they get out of it is just to be aware that there is there is a tax footnote. And it's worth checking <laughs> at the, at the, you know, that 10,000 foot level of like, you can find information in the footnotes. But to go a little bit deeper in that, I would say the things I'd want someone to look at is just what is their general tax situation? You, uh, the two of you were mentioning kind of the idea of tax planning. Well, we get a little bit of insight into like what kinds and what ways do they do it? And that itself is just a little bit more firm specific information on like, what are the main aspects that affect the company's taxes? And the tax footnote provides a little bit about that. And then final, uh, one other thing I'd really mention is like, as you guys work through the rate reconciliation table, is just to get a bit of a flavor of what is the amount, like the tax rate that's most applicable for that company. Generally speaking, most companies are not going to be accruing for the statutory rate of 21%. And that's not because they're doing anything wrong and manipulative or even out of the ordinary. It's just that mm -hmm. there is some degree of tax planning at basically every company. Mm -hmm. So you've said a bunch of buzzwords that we also mentioned too. We talked about the statutory rate. Most companies aren't accruing at 21%. Then we've got the effective tax rate, which is the rate that they are accruing at. You talked a little bit about some company specific tax rate. Like if you had to build a model to forecast like future profits or something like that, future cash flows. So can you talk a little bit about what you would be incorporating in a company specific tax rate? Great question. Uh, love to get a chance to answer that, which is, yeah, our MBA students looking at doing valuation and DCFs and modeling and all that stuff, that's the norm. Yep. And there's a lot of things to put into that. One of those things you have to consider is what's the amount of taxes the company's going to incur going forward in your projections. So what would you use there? I would not use the statutory rate. And this is exactly where the rate reconciliation, I think, provides most of its value. Find that footnote, the income tax footnote, right? Find the rate reconciliation, usually one or two items down, and then just look at those items. 
they start with the statutory rate, either the percent or the dollar amount the company would pay. Mm -hmm. And then there's a bunch of different items that you guys mentioned in the beginning of this uh, episode, but I'd actually go through each of them and try to make our best determination by using historical data, by using our understanding of the business, of which of those do we expect to persist going forward. Um, you started the conversation with Apple, so I'm gonna jump back to them. That's a company where I would, modeling them at the statutory rate of 21% doesn't make sense. Your, no. your valuation would be wrong, predictably so, because that would they're not a company that's expected to be paying 21% for the long foreseeable future. No. There are some specific areas I think we could look at there, like foreign income taxes. That generally is reducing their total taxable income. Mm -hmm. I expect that to persist, right? Because mm -hmm. I don't have a reason to say that Apple's going to, you know, end its foreign operations. Right. right. We're much, much bigger issues. <laughs> uh, R&D tax credit. That's another one. Well, I, I have no reason to believe that Apple's going to give up on its R&D. That's that's critical to their business. And so you, as you look through some of those items and occasionally get an item like an other or a one time thing. And I would say, mm -hmm. well, I'm going to set that aside. But I'd almost look through the rate reconciliation and go line by line and ask ourselves, is that item, is that factor, is that going to continue going forward? And if so, leave it in there. And I think you'd have enough left in there that would be reducing the rate for Apple that if you were building out that model, you're going to be at that 15, 16% by using the rate reconciliation table and trying to make my determination of which of those items in that table is a core persistent component of Apple's business. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's interesting that some companies can achieve a lower rate, significantly lower than 21%. Um, you know, over many, many years. So that leads to the question, can you provide a little more color around the difference between a low rate versus a low amount of taxes that they actually pay? Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, question to ask, which is that just in general, I think we see a lot of commentary from politicians, from the press, et cetera, of like being critical of companies for not paying a large amount of taxes and or for paying a low rate. Right. And it's just worth disentangling those. Uh, Apple, I think is one that we just talked through has that low rate, but they've paid, I think it's correct that 91, $92 billion in taxes over the last six years. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot. Yeah. It's a massive amount of money. And it's like, yeah, they're paying a lower rate than some other companies than a Walmart or a CVS or an Exxon Mobil, but they're still paying a massive amount in taxes in total. A company can have tax planning that reduces their rate mm -hmm. and that's worth understanding about a company. And a company may pay a smaller or larger dollar amount of taxes. And I would say, like, which of those should we be tracking? Both. You know, the conversation about why do companies pay a small amount in taxes? Uh, I would argue that the main reason for that, and this is maybe more of like an Amazon or a Tesla mm -hmm. or these, we have a tax code that is extremely complicated. Mm -hmm. We're not going to spend the hours uh, unpacking it, but that incentivizes companies to reinvest. And so when you are that high growth company reinvesting in things like R&D mm -hmm. and future projects, you're naturally gonna have low taxable income. If you have low taxable income, you're naturally gonna be paying, set aside the rate for a moment here, you're naturally gonna be paying a smaller dollar amount mm -hmm. of taxes. Mm -hmm. And which companies have low taxable income? Those that are in the aggressive growth build for their future stages, uh, and I think they get some criticism of not paying a lot of taxes, but I'd argue that criticism likely is not well focused on the companies themselves, but nope. more on don't we, we generally speaking, have a tax policies and situation that uh, incentivizes companies to invest. 
investing just means that if you have more expenses in the current period, you're going to pay less in taxes. Yep. You are speaking our language. And just to make sure our listeners are on board, you mentioned Amazon and Tesla. Those are companies that obviously took a lot of risk in the early parts of their, um, you know, their businesses. They incurred a lot of losses. And we have a rule in the U.S. that when you lose money in one year, Mm -hmm. you get to take those excess deductions because that's all they are, to your point. They were spending money to do things. They had more deductions than income. You get to take those excess deductions and use them to reduce your tax payment in a future year that is written into our code. And I had just two pieces there because I think it's a great conversation that you launched into there, Bridget, which is that Amazon is one that's basically always been running like roughly break even. If Mm. you look at their financials since like 97, it's like rough, I think minus one year, it's like roughly break even as you know, maybe the next couple, last couple of years they've been profitable, but roughly break even. But if you're roughly break even, your taxable income, like I'm going to say rounds to zero. It really mm-hmm. seems like a couple billion dollars here or there. So like they have rounding to zero. And then Tesla is a great example of actually having large losses for yep. many, many years. And as, as you mentioned, just to repeat that, like they get to carry those forward against future profitability. As if Tesla continues to be profitable in 2023 and 2024 and 2025, et cetera, they're actually not going to be paying large amounts of taxes because they get to take all those prior period losses and offset them against their future taxable tax burden. Hmm. And, and, and that is by design, as, as we've right. said. So that is something that I think I won't include Lisa in the statement, but I think sometimes politicians get wrong. Politicians, you know, say that companies are exploiting a loophole by deducting loss carry forwards. And I don't think that's true. <laughs> what are some other elements of corporate taxes that you've seen discussed incorrectly, either by politicians or in the press? Yeah, my, my quick, probably whitewash commentary there <laughs> would just be that, like, we have to think about the tax code itself and what we've established. And I don't like the idea of, well, this company is, you know, legally following the tax code, following the incentives created. And and we are, you know, trying to make them into the boogeyman of the scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And if, if we have issues with tax policies, like the fact that you can reinvest and pay little to no taxes, the fact that you can carry forward losses, uh, the fact that some companies are allowed to pay lower rates. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd argue that would really be less about, let me you know, criticize that company and more about, well, then that's a great conversation to have about whether or not we should change our tax code. I'm not in any way implying that's easy. I'm not implying that there's not with its <laughs> own costs and benefits or tons of lobbying. But I would say like, to me, most of those conversations seem to be more of a Maybe a fair point to make, certainly, but more about the tax uh, rate code itself as opposed to a company that's you know legally following that. Because you know somebody committing fraud is fundamentally different. But usually, these are large companies that employ you know hundreds of thousands of people, uh, generate a ton of economic growth, and also do tax planning, legal tax planning, uh, alongside that. We talked a little bit about um, valuation allowances in the first segment of this episode. I'm curious to get your perspective on them because we we talked a little bit about how they might be a signal of maybe some bad news. Um, How does that factor into some of the valuation approaches that you teach in your class? Yeah, great. Um, I would say that, you know, looking at the tax footnote, it's worth having general awareness about the valuation allowance. To me, and I've covered in class Tesla for this example, which is They have a massive amount of deferred tax assets and they're virtually all offset with a valuation Mm -hmm. which implies that like we won't be able to benefit from these assets which give us the ability to pay less in taxes in the future the valuation allowance offsets that but i'd argue that that valuation allowance is likely going to be reversed in the near future and in their 2022 10k Mm -hmm. they have a i don't remember the exact line so i'll paraphrase this but you know like 
there's a chance that we may be considering reversing this based on the facts and circumstances, et cetera, going forward. And I absolutely think they will. I don't know exactly when. Mm-hmm. So I would argue like, here's one piece where it's not that informative. In reading ASC 740, my understanding of it is that if you've never been profitable, mm-hmm. you basically have to have, I mean, right. it's not like it's literally there, but the evidence you'd have to have to yeah. not record a valuation allowance seems insurmountable. Yes. Yep. So Tesla falls into that category where like, look, they've just not made profits up until the last couple quarters. And therefore, they're really required by gap. So I'd argue evaluation allowance kind of can go in two ways. Mm. It's like when you've never been profitable, it's just a gap requirement. Mm. And I, I would think that that's less useful in terms of company specific insight other than being aware of it and how it affects the reporting of assets, which is different from a company that may have actually had uh, some transitory nature to their profitability where a valuation allowance might be worth unpacking and trying to spend a little bit more time understanding because that's one where I would argue in the tax provision sense, the company is making a choice in exerting discretion about using the valuation allowance, which is different from we've had nine years of losses. We've never had a profitable quarter. And I think that's where the management discretion of reporting might be more valuable. Any uh, parting words of wisdom for us? Hey, can I just offer one thing? You guys said it. Um, you were talking about companies that do tax planning. Can, can I just be nitpicky? I feel like that's everybody does tax planning. It's just whether or not you have like you just have constraints. Like that's my CBS commentary. Like they also do tax planning. They just have less that they can do. Mm. Thanks very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was a ton of fun to listen uh, to you realize two things at once that I am a tax nerd, but maybe not <laughs> as big of a tax nerd as you guys, um, Fair. but definitely still tax nerd. And then uh, two, uh, I, I love to say this in class, but my comments are just uh, read good, which is like read the footnotes. There's such great information about companies out there. And the footnotes may seem intimidating or daunting, but if you're listening to this podcast at this moment, you're probably not intimidated by them. But yeah, no matter what your area is, obviously this is particular to income taxes, but go out and try to find company-specific information. I mean, I, I think the wealth of information companies willingly provide, mm. you know, following uh, the, the the requirements there is is usually incredible in like the way to, you can really flesh out a lot about your story and get a lot of company-specific facts. So so read, read good, read the footnotes, uh, grab that piece of information, just make sure you're equipped with as much information as possible. Love that. You're, you're, you're doing the Lord's work by getting them to read the footnote <laughs> in the first place or 75% of it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys. For the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as is usually the case when we have a guest, I'm pretty excited to have a guest. I mean, it's pretty good to have somebody who teaches financial statement analysis, who understands the tax footnotes, who likes to nerd out with us over taxes. Mm-hmm. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. I was trying to think of something clever, like you just like having a normal person on the show to like up the ratio of normal to crazy when it's above 50% when it's just you and me. Yeah, okay. that's true. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so yes, it was great talking to Patrick. Yes. And I really liked something he said about how his kind of goal for the class is just to let the students know that the tax footnote exists. Like he's happy if they just know that if they want to get more information about taxes, they're not relegated to that single line on the income statement. They can dig into the hundred plus pages of fun that is a firm's 10K and get like a whole page worth of stuff that's just about taxes. And this is a good thing. 
I think it's a good thing because think about it. If they had never gone to his class, maybe they wouldn't have even known that it existed. Okay. I'm going to spin that as a bad. Okay. I, uh, yes, go. <laughs> because it just seems sad to me that people don't know that it, is ex- that it exists and that, you know, a goal is just to make sure people know that it exists like that. It's, it's a, it's a low bar. It is a low bar. And I'll take that point. However, if you were to ask me what other footnotes exist in the financial statements, I'm not sure that I could name them all. I couldn't name all of them. I can name several. I can name some of them. So I'm just trying to give people the benefit of the doubt. And now I'm going to tell a story. Okay. I don't think I've told on this podcast before. Okay. But maybe I have. All right. I was talking to a data vendor. As one does. Selling me, trying to sell me information about tax footnotes. As one does. Much of which was incorrect. Oh, yeah. And I was pointing out to this person, as I like to do. <laughs> How wrong they were. All the things that they were doing wrong. Yes. And also trying to charge me money for. Yes. And this person said, you're Shackleton. The explorer. Who apparently died, was crushed by an ice pack while exploring Antarctica. So the point of that story was this person was analogizing the tax footnote uh-huh. to Antarctica. Okay, Shackleton survived that trip. He did. Okay, good. That's good. I mean, he may have gone back and died on another trip, but okay. the the famous endurance trip, he, they all survived. Okay. Every single crew member okay. survived. Excellent. Love that. Okay. But point being, tax footnote, maybe not a welcoming place, maybe not warm. It's Antarctica. It's Antarctica. And so, you know, I'm happy that Patrick is fighting the good fight and trying to get some people to the Antarctica of the 10K, which is the tax footnote. I like it. Okay. I'm still, I still think that the bar is a little too low That's there. fine. Okay. I'm not going to fight. Okay. And the the ugly? The ugly, I guess, I would say is that, as we mentioned, this is the place where you have to go. If you want to know something about a company's taxes, you're not getting their tax return. Mm. Regardless of what they try to sell you, the politicians don't know anything. Right. So if you want to figure something out, you got to go to the tax footnote. And while Patrick is correct, and there is a lot of potential information to get out of there, I think sometimes it's a little too complicated. Mm. It could be a little bit more transparent. It could be a little bit more user-friendly than it is. It could be more user-friendly and uh, it could also provide more information because, I mean, it is a wealth of information. Yes. However, it is highly aggregated. Yes. It is highly standardized across mm-hmm. companies. Like, they, like there could be more detail granularity there that would be very nice for us as researchers, but also for financial statement users to glean more about the tax position of the firm. So I'm going to say two things here. I have some research with uh, Jerry Seidman, Rosh Sinha, and Stefan Richter. Mm-hmm. And this was based off of some interviews we did with tax executives. Mm-hmm. And we basically asked them, like, when you write the tax footnote, what are you trying to do? And without us saying anything, many of them use the word vague. Yeah. So fortunately for us, there's actually a dictionary of vague words. Mm. We tested all the footnotes. Mm-hmm. Tax footnote, one of the most vague footnotes. Okay. So they were not lying to us when they said that they try to make it vague. So this is what my husband would say, tax footnote, people are talking a lot and not saying anything. Agreed. Second thing I'll say is to your point, FASB's trying to increase the transparency yes. of the tax footnote, yes. giving users some of this disaggregated information that you want. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. I, I think it's like, it's, it's spring cleaning mm. and we maybe need to not say more things. We mm. need to say more about the important things. We need to say better things. Better things, not more quality, not quantity. Do better. Be best. Be best. Well, that's all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.